Section 11 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 6, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter 4, Part 2. The Queen's perplexity regarding the prelate, who was to crown her, must have continued till the last moment, because, had Dr. Oglethorpe, the Bishop of Carlisle, been earlier prevailed on, to perform the ceremony, it is certain proper vestments could have been prepared for him, instead of borrowing them from Bonner, which was actually done on the spur of the moment. Dr. Oglethorpe was the officiating bishop at the royal chapel. He might therefore consider that he owed more obedience to the sovereign's command than the rest of the Catholic prelates. The compromise appears to have been that if Elizabeth took the ancient oath administered to her Catholic predecessors, he would set the crown on her head. That she took such oath is universally agreed by historians. She passed the night preceding her coronation at Whitehall, and early in the morning came in her barge, in procession by water, to the old palace at Westminster. She assumed the same robes in which she afterwards opened Parliament, a mantle of crimson velvet, furred with ermine, with a cordon of silk and gold, with buttons and tassels of the same a train and surcoat of the same velvet, the train and skirt furred with ermine, a cap of maintenance, striped with passaments of gold lace, and a tassel of gold to the same. This was by no means in accordance with the jeweled circlets usually worn by queens of England, whether consort or regnant, preparatory to their coronation. There is every reason to believe, from the utter exhaustion of the treasury, that the coronation of Elizabeth was in many instances abbreviated of its usual splendor. But one very scarce and imperfect detail exists of it. For it could not have given pleasure to any party, the Protestants must have been ashamed of the oath she took, and the Catholics enraged at her breaking it. Her procession from Westminster Hall was met by the one bishop, Oglethorpe, he wore his mitre and the borrowed vestments of Bonner. Three crosses were borne before him, and he walked at the head of the singers of the Queen's Chapel, who sang as they went, Salve Festa Deis. The path for the Queen's procession was railed in and spread with blue cloth. The Queen was conducted, with the usual ceremonies, to a chair of state at the high altar. She was then led by two noblemen to the platform for recognition, and presented by Bishop Oglethorpe as queen, trumpets blowing between every proclamation. When she presented herself before the high altar, she knelt before Oglethorpe, and kissed the cover, or veil, of the patent and chalice, and made an offering in money. She returned to her chair while Bishop Oglethorpe preached the sermon and bade the beads, a service somewhat similar to our litany, and the queen kneeling, said the Lord's Prayer. Then being reseated, the bishop administered the coronation oath. The precise words of it are omitted, but it has been asserted that it was the same exacted for James I and the Stuart kings of England, who were required to take a similar oath, namely, to keep the church in the same state as did King Edward the Confessor. Some important points of difference certainly existed between the discipline of the Anglo-Saxon Church of the 11th century and the Roman Catholic of the 16th century. What they were, it is the place of theologians to discuss. But it is our duty to our subject to suggest, as her defense from the horrid appearance of willful perjury, 
that it is possible she meant at that time to model the reformed church she projected and for which she challenged the appellation of catholic as near as possible to the anglo-saxon church when bishop oglethorpe was kneeling before the altar the queen gave a little book to a lord to deliver to him the bishop refused to receive it and read in other books but immediately afterwards the bishop took the queen's book and read it before her grace it is supposed that the queen sent with her little book a request that oglethorpe would read the gospel and epistle in english which was done and it constituted the sole difference between the former catholic coronations and that of elizabeth then the bishop sang blank here is an hiatus from the manuscript the mass from a missal which had been carried in procession before the queen a carpet was spread before the high altar and cushions of gold cloth placed upon it and the secretary cecil delivered a book to the bishop another bishop standing at the left of the altar the queen now approached the altar and leaned upon cushions while her attendants spread a silken cloth over her and the bishop anointed her it seems she was displeased at this part of the ceremony for when it was finished and she retired behind her traverse to change her dress she observed to her maids that the oil was grease and smelled ill when she reappeared before the public in the abbey she wore a train and mantle of cloth of gold furred with ermine then a sword with a girdle was put upon her the belt going over one shoulder and under the other two garters were put on her arms these were the armilla or armlets and were not connected with the order of the garter then the bishop put the crown upon her head and delivered the sceptre into her hand she was then crowned with another crown probably the crown of ireland the trumpets again sounding the queen then offered the sword laying it on the altar and knelt with the sceptre and cross in her hand while the bishop read from a book the queen then returned to her chair of state the bishop put his hands into the queen's hands and repeated certain words this was the homage the whole account being evidently given by an eyewitness not previously acquainted with the ceremony he asserts that the lords did homage to the queen kneeling and kissing her he adds then the rest of the bishops did homage but this must be a mistake because they would have preceded the nobles then the bishop began the mass the epistle being read first in latin and then in english the gospel the same the book being sent to the queen who kissed the gospel she then went to the altar to make her second offering three unsheathed swords being borne before her and one in the scabbard the queen kneeling put money in the basin and kissed the chalice and then and there certain words were read to her grace she retired to her seat again during the consecration and kissed the pax she likewise received the eucharist but did not receive from the cup when mass was done she retired behind the high altar and as usual offered her crown robes and regalia in st edward's chapel coming forth again with the state crown on her head and robed in violet velvet and ermine and so proceeded to the banquet in westminster hall the champion of england sir edward dymock performed his official duty by riding into the hall in fair complete armor upon a beautiful courser richly trapped with gold cloth he cast down his gauntlet in the midst of the hall as the queen sat at dinner with offer to fight him in the queen's rightful quarrel who should deny her to be the lawful queen of this realm the proclamation of the heralds on this occasion is a historical and literary curiosity 
the right the champion offered to defend was according to the proclamation of mr garter king-at-arms that of the most high and mighty princess our dread sovereign lady elizabeth by the grace of god queen of england france ireland defender of the true ancient and catholic faith most worthy empress from the orcade isles to the mountains pyrenee a largest a largest a largest thus the title of supreme head of the church was not then publicly challenged by elizabeth yet it might appear implied in the addition to her regal style so strangely brought in after the phrase defender of the true ancient and catholic faith as if she were empress of the faith of those who renounced the papal domination from the north of scotland to the reformers in the south of france for what but to mystify the listening ear with some such idea could such a phrase be interpolated in such a ceremony for if she meant to challenge the old claim of bretwalda over scotland why was it not added to her temporal titles besides by claiming the whole kingdom of france in the preceding sentence she had previously asserted her empire over that country to the pyrenees labor dire and weary woe is the struggle for those to appear consistent who are wilfully acting a double part it is withal useless elizabeth far famed as she was for courage personal and mental and both have perhaps been overrated had not at this juncture the moral intrepidity to assert what she had already assumed and acted on in private one of the earliest regnal acts of elizabeth was to send friendly and confidential assurances to the kings of denmark and sweden and all the protestant princes of germany of her attachment to the reformed faith and her wish to cement a bond of union between all its professors at the same time with a view of keeping fair with the catholic powers of europe and obtaining a recognition that would ensure the obedience of her own subjects of that persuasion she directed carney her late sister's resident minister at the court of rome to announce her accession to pope paul the fourth and to assure him that it was not her intention to offer violence to the consciences of any denomination of her subjects on the score of religion the aged pontiff incensed at the new doctrine of liberty of conscience implied in this declaration and regarding with hostile feelings the offspring of a marriage which had involved the overthrow of the papal power in england replied that he was not able to comprehend the hereditary right of one not born in wedlock that the queen of scots claimed the crown as the nearest legitimate descendant of henry the seventh but that if elizabeth were willing to submit the controversy to his arbitration every indulgence should be shown to her which justice would permit elizabeth immediately recalled her minister the pope forbade his return under peril of excommunication and carney though he talked largely of his loyalty to his royal mistress remained at rome till his death the bull issued by this haughty pontiff on the twelfth of january fifteen fifty eight to fifty nine declaring heretical sovereigns incapable of reigning though elizabeth's name was not mentioned therein was supposed to be peculiarly aimed at her yet it did not deprive her of the allegiance of her catholic peers all of whom paid their liege homage to her as their undoubted sovereign at her coronation the new sovereign received the flattering submissions of her late persecutors with a graciousness of demeanor which proved that the queen had the magnanimity to forgive the injuries and even the insults that had been offered to the princess elizabeth 
one solitary instance is recorded in which she used an uncourteous expression to a person who had formerly treated her with disrespect and now sought her pardon a member of the late queen's household conscious that he had offered many petty affronts to elizabeth when she was under the cloud of her sister's displeasure came in a great fright to throw himself at her feet on her first triumphant assumption of the regal office and in the most abject language besought her not to punish him for his impertinences to her when princess fear not replied the queen we are of the nature of the lion and cannot descend to the destruction of mice and such small beasts to sir henry bedingfeld she archly observed when he came to pay his duty to her at her first court whenever i have a prisoner who requires to be safely and straightly kept i shall send him to you she was wont to tease him by calling him her jailer when in her mirthful mood but always treated him as a friend and honored him subsequently with a visit at his stately mansion oxburg hall norfolk elizabeth strengthened her interest in the upper house by adding and restoring five protestant statesmen to the peerage henry carey her mother's nephew she created lord hunsdon lord thomas howard brother to the duke of norfolk she made viscount bindon oliver st john also in connection of the boleyns baron of bletsoe she restored the brother of catherine parr william marquis of northampton to the honors he had forfeited in the late reign by espousing the cause of lady jane grey and also the son of the late protector somerset edward seymour to the title of earl of hertford the morning after her coronation she went to her chapel it being the custom to release prisoners at the inauguration of a sovereign perhaps there was some forgotten religious ceremony connected with this act of grace in her great chamber one of the courtiers presented her with a petition and before the whole court in a loud voice implored that four or five more prisoners might be released on inquiry he declared them to be the four evangelists and the apostle st paul who had been long shut up in an unknown tongue as it were in prison so they could not converse with the common people elizabeth answered very gravely it is best first to inquire of them whether they approve of being released or not the inquiry was soon after made in the convocation appointed by parliament the result of which was that the apostles did approve of their translation the translation of the scriptures was immediately published by authority which after several revisions became in the succeeding reign the basis of our present version the religious revolution effected by elizabeth was very gently and gradually brought to pass the queen writes jewel to peter martyr though she openly favors our cause is wonderfully afraid of allowing any innovations this is owing partly to her own friends by whose advice everything is carried on and partly to the influence of count feria a spaniard and philip's ambassador she is however prudently piously and firmly following up her purpose though somewhat more slowly than we could wish the queen continues jewel regards you most highly she made so much of your letter that she read it over a second and third time with the greatest eagerness i doubt not but that your book when it arrives will be even more acceptable her charge to her judges given about the same time is noble in the simplicity of its language it may be noticed 
that when elizabeth used perspicuous phraseology in speaking or writing she was usually sincere have a care over my people you have my people do you that which i ought to do they are my people every man oppresseth and spoileth them without mercy they cannot revenge their quarrel nor help themselves see unto them see unto them for they are my charge i charge you even as god hath charged me i care not for myself my life is not dear to me my care is for my people i pray god whoever succeedeth me be as careful as i am they who know what cares i bear would not think i took any great joy in wearing a crown these ears added dr jewel heard her majesty speak these words the queen rode in her parliamentary robes on the twenty fifth of january with all her peers spiritual and temporal in their robes to westminster abbey where she attended a somewhat incongruous religious service high mass was celebrated at the altar before queen lords and commons the sermon was preached by dr cox edward the sixth calvinistic schoolmaster who had returned from geneva for the purpose the queen's supremacy was debated in this parliament dr heath the lord chancellor who took his seat with the rest of the catholic bishops spoke against this measure finally the oath of the queen's supremacy as confirmed by parliament being tendered to dr heath archbishop of york and the rest of the catholic bishops all refused it but landaff they were deprived of their sees with which the most illustrious of the protestant divines were endowed the learned dr parker the friend of anne boleyn was appointed by the queen archbishop of canterbury he had been in exile for conscience sake in the reign of queen mary under his auspices the church of england was established by authority of this session of parliament nearly in its present state the common prayer and articles of edward the sixth church being restored with some important modifications the translation of the scriptures in english was likewise restored to the people before the house of commons was dissolved sir thomas gargrave their speaker craved leave to bring up a petition to her majesty of vital importance to the realm it was to entreat that she would marry that the country might have her royal issue to reign over them elizabeth received the address presented by the speaker knights and burgesses of the lower house seated in state in her great gallery at whitehall palace she paused a short space after listening to the request of the commons and then made a long oration in reply which george ferrers who was present recorded as near as he could bring it away but whether the fault rests with the royal oratress or the reporter this task was not very perspicuously achieved in the course of her speech she alluded very mysteriously to her troubles in the former reign from my years of understanding she said knowing myself a servitor of almighty god i choose this kind of life in which i do yet live as a life most acceptable to him wherein i thought i could best serve him from which my choice if ambition of high estate offered me in marriage the displeasure of the prince the eschewing the danger of mine enemies or the avoiding the peril of death whose messenger the princess's indignation was continually present before mine eyes by whose means if i knew or do justly suspect i will not now utter them or if the whole cause were my sister herself i will not now charge the dead 
could all have drawn or dissuaded me i had not now remained in this virgin's estate wherein you see me but so constant have i always continued in this my determination that though my words and youth may seem hardly to agree together yet it is true that to this day i stand free from any other meaning towards the conclusion of her speech she made an observation which some years later would have seemed to imply the future advantages of the whole island being united by the succession of the heirs of stuart to the english throne yet as mary of scotland was then dauphiness of france and childless nothing of the kind could have been in the thoughts of elizabeth and albeit it doth please almighty god to continue me still in the mind to live out of the state of marriage it is not to be feared but he will so work in my heart and in my wisdoms that as good provision may be made in convenient time whereby the realm shall not remain destitute of an heir that may be a fit governor and perventure more beneficial to the realm than such offspring as may come of me for though i be never so careful for your well-doings yet may mine issue grow out of kind and become ungracious she then drew from her finger her coronation ring and showing it to the commons told them that when she received that ring she had solemnly bound herself in marriage to the realm and that it would be quite sufficient for the memorial of her name and for her glory if when she died an inscription were engraved on a marble tomb saying here lieth elizabeth which reigned a virgin and died a virgin in conclusion she dismissed the deputation with these words i take your coming to me in good part and give to you eftsoons my hearty thanks yet more for your good will and good meaning than for your message elizabeth when she made this declaration was in the flower of her age having completed her twenty-fifth year in the preceding september and according to the description given of her at the period of her accession to the throne by sir robert naughton she must have been possessed of no ordinary personal attractions she was of person tall of hair and complexion fair and therewithal well favoured but high-nosed of limb and feature neat and which added to the lustre of these external graces of a stately and majestic comportment participating more of her father than of her mother who was of an inferior ally plausible or as the french have it debonair and affable which descending as hereditary to the daughter did render her of a more sweet temper and endeared her to the love of the people she had already refused the proffered hand of her sister's widower philip the second of spain who had pressed his suit with earnestness amounting to importunity animated by the desire of regaining with another regal english bride a counterbalance to the allied powers of france and scotland it has also been asserted that the spanish monarch had conceived a passion for elizabeth during the life of her sister which rendered his suit more lively and assuredly he must have commenced his overtures before his deceased consort's obsequies were celebrated in his eagerness to gain the start of other candidates elizabeth always attributed his political hostility to his personal pique at her declining to become his wife according to camden philip addressed many eloquent letters to elizabeth during his short but eager courtship and she took infinite pleasure and pride in publishing them among her courtiers philip endeavoured also to overcome the scruples of his royal sister-in-law whom on that occasion 
he certainly treated as a member of the church of rome by assuring her that there would be no difficulty in obtaining a dispensation from the pope for their marriage elizabeth felt however that it would be a marriage even more objectionable than that of her father henry the eighth with catherine of aragon and that for her to become a party in matrimony contracted under such circumstances would at once by virtually invalidating her own legitimacy declare mary queen of scots the rightful heiress of the late queen her sister in succession to the throne of england and elizabeth had no inclination to risk the contingency of exchanging the regal garland of plantagenet and tudor for the crown matrimonial of spain yet she had a difficult and a delicate game to play for the friendship of spain appeared to be her only bulwark against the combined forces of france and scotland she had succeeded to an empty exchequer a realm dispirited by the loss of calais burdened with debt embarrassed with a base coinage and a starving population ready to break into a civil war under the pretext of deciding the strength of rival creeds by the sword moreover her title to the throne had already been impugned by the king of france compelling his youthful daughter-in-law the queen of scots then in her sixteenth year and entirely under his control to assume the arms and regal style of england on the sixteenth of january fifteen fifty nine the dauphin of france and the queen of scotland his wife did by the style and title of king and queen of england and ireland grant to lord fleming certain things notes sir william cecil in his diary a brief and quiet entry of a debt incurred in the name of an irresponsible child which was hereafter to be paid with heavy interest in tears and blood by that ill-fated princess whose name had in the brief season of her morning splendor filled the hearts of elizabeth and her council with alarm if elizabeth had shared the feminine propensity of leaning on others for succor in the time of danger she would have probably accepted inglorious protection with the nuptial ring of philip but she partook not of the nature of the ivy but the oak being formed and fitted to stand alone and she met the crisis bravely she was new to the cares of empire but the study of history had given her experience and knowledge in the regnal science beyond what can be acquired during years of personal attempts at governing by monarchs who have wasted their youthful energies in the pursuit of pleasure or mere finger-end accomplishments the chart by which she steered was marked with the rocks the quicksands and the shoals on which the barks of other princes had been wrecked and she knew that of all the false beacons that had allured the feeble mind to disgrace and ruin the expedient of calling in foreign aid the seasons of national distress was the most fatal she knew the english character and she had seen the evils and discontents that had sprung from her sister's spanish marriage and in her own case these would have been aggravated by the invalidation of her title to the throne she therefore firmly but courteously declined the proposal under the plea of scruples of conscience which were to her insuperable this refusal preceded her coronation for the spanish ambassador count feria in consequence of the slight which he conceived had been put upon his master by the maiden monarch declining the third reversion of his hand feigned sickness as an excuse for not assisting at that ceremonial the next month philip pledged himself to the beautiful elizabeth of france a perilous alliance for elizabeth of england it rendered philip of spain and the husband of mary queen of scots the formidable rival of her title 
brothers-in-law. Elizabeth's first care was to procure an act for the recognition and declaring of her own title from her parliament, which was unanimously passed, and without any allusion to her mother's marriage, or the stigma which had previously been put on her own birth. The statute declares her to be rightly, lineally, and lawfully descended from the blood royal, and pronounces all sentences and acts of parliament derogatory to this declaration to be void. The latter clause is tantamount to a repeal of all those dishonoring statutes which had passed in the reign of Henry the Eighth against her mother and herself, and in addition an act was passed which, without reversing the attainer of Anne Boleyn, rendered Elizabeth inheritable to her mother and to all her maternal ancestors. This was a prudential care for securing, malgré, all the chances and changes that might befall the crown, a share in the wealth of the citizen family of Boleyn, implying at the same time that she was the lawful representative of the elder co-heiress of that house, and, of course, born in lawful wedlock. But in a nobler spirit would it have been to have used the same influence for the vindication of her mother's honor by causing the statutes which infamed her to be swept from the records. The want of moral courage on the part of Elizabeth in leaving this duty unperformed was injurious to her own royal dignity and has been always regarded as a tacit admission of Anne Boleyn's guilt. Many writers have argued that it was a point of wisdom in Elizabeth not to hazard calling attention to the validity of her father's marriage with Anne Boleyn or the charges against that unfortunate queen. But inasmuch as it was impossible to prevent those subjects from continuing, as they always had been, points of acrimonious discussion, her cautious evasions of questions, so closely touching her own honor, gave rise to the very evils she was anxious to avoid, and we find that a gentleman named Laborn was executed at Preston, who died saying, Elizabeth was no queen of England, but only Elizabeth Bullen, and that Mary of Scotland was rightful sovereign. Notwithstanding the danger of her position, from the probable coalition of the powers of Catholic Europe against her, Elizabeth stood undaunted, and, though aware of the difficulty of maintaining a war, with such resources as she possessed, she assumed as high a tone, for the honor of England, as the mightiest of her predecessors, during the conferences at Chateau Cambresses, for the arrangement of a general treaty of pacification, and, declining the offered mediation of Philip II, she chose to treat alone. She demanded the restoration of Calais, as the prominent article, and that, in so bold and persevering a manner, that it was guaranteed to her, at the expiration of eight years, by the King of France, under a penalty of five hundred thousand crowns. With a view to the satisfaction of her subjects, she caused Lord Wentworth, the last Lord Deputy of Calais, and others of the late commanders there, to be arraigned, for the loss of a place more dear than profitable to England, and also to show how firmly the reins of empire could be grasped in the hand of a maiden monarch. Wentworth was acquitted by his peers, the others were found guilty and condemned, but the sentence was never carried into execution. End of section 11.